As you are taking your seats, please uh, turn in your Bible to the tail end of Romans chapter 8. And just a few introductory words, it'll take a few minutes before we even get into things today. Uh, Last Sunday, there were some things I did not get to say that I would like to get to today, so we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last Sunday. And let me just mention a few sort of opening things to think through before we get into our passage. So, number one, uh, 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, all Scripture is God-breathed, so it, is, it has His authority, it's His Word, but it is also good for us. It's profitable. Uh, so, th- there is no part of Scripture that is unprofitable. Some parts are more challenging than others, but all parts of Scripture are profitable. And I would argue the parts that are most challenging sometimes are the most profitable because it, it, it stretches us as we go to study them. Number two, the, the doctrine that will be taught here in Romans 8 and 9 that we'll be looking at today is as true… to see the doctrine in Romans 9 as true and beautiful takes a work of God's Spirit. And so, I want to give us just a moment for all of us right now to just pray silently. And, and here's something along the lines of what I would like you to, to ask the Lord for. Ask the Lord to, first of all, give you a submissive heart to His Word. Whatever His Word says, even if I'm not totally sure I understand it all, I'm going to affirm it as two things, like I said last week, both true and, what's the other one? Good for me. True and good. And so, just in a moment, as we talk more about the doctrine of election today, and how I hope to get to how it relates to evangelism, but as we talk about this difficult doctrine, I want you to pray in your own heart and say, Lord, give me a heart that is willing to submit to Your Word and to see what it teaches and to love what it teaches. So, just take a moment to pray silently. Heavenly Father, we are dependent on You. We have very small minds compared to your omniscience. We are clay pots. You are the potter. Help us, Lord, to see what is both true in your word and help us to see what is true as good. Uh, God, I cannot personally do this. I cannot convince anyone. I cannot show this to anyone, but you can. And so I would ask that as we study this uh, passage, that you would make clear to us its meaning and that You would show us the beauty of Your sovereignty over human beings, over ourselves, and help this teaching to make us desperate for Your help in life. Help this teaching to make us passionate in evangelism. Help us from going astray in some false implications we could draw from this doctrine that would not be biblical. Guard us but help give us a submissiveness in heart and mind to Your Word to affirm it as true and love it as beautiful. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A, uh, this copy must be almost an original, it looks like. Uh, this is uh, J.I. Packer's excellent little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I am sure there's a new cover by now than this from the 60s, I think. But Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer is a tiny little book, but it is packed with truth. And I cannot, nothing I'm going to say today can improve on, on what he says here. So if you want to know more about the doctrine of God's sovereignty over human beings in salvation and evangelism, 
this book is just packed. It's almost every page is quotable. I mean, you can just, it's just fantastic. So, if you want to take some time to read this, I think Philip Henry told me he was reading this a couple, a week ago. So, if you grab a copy, we're trying to order a couple copies for maybe next week, but that is a wonderful book on the topic. Also, a few things I want to mention. Uh, with Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, and, and following, here's a couple things to keep in mind as we study, uh, especially 9 today and a little bit of 10. Here's a couple things. Number one, Romans 9, which is one of the strongest teachings on the doctrine of unconditional election in the entire Bible, it's just unbelievably strong how it teaches it. Keep these things in mind. Number one, the passage begins with an evangelistic heart like no other passage. Isn't that amazing? Last week, you may have felt some of the tension. If God is sovereign over salvation, then why evangelize? You ever ever thought that? It's a pretty obvious question people ask. And Paul begins the chapter with an evangelist heart. He ends the chapter with an evangelistic prayer, chapter 10, verse 1. I pray for them that they might be saved. So, he's praying for their salvation while he's talking about unconditional election in the same context. The passage includes human accountability and responsibility at the end of chapter 9. And the passage makes God's sovereign choice over salvation ultimately unconditional. It's it's His choice. The next chapter, chapter 10, makes evangelism essential. Isn't that amazing? How will they believe unless they are told? That's in the very next chapter. So, evangelism is essential in the very next chapter. And the chapter after that, chapter 11, Paul explains his evangelistic strategy toward the Jews. I mean, that's… If our mind, and I grant you, it's hard, if our mind cannot hold these things together, this is why we need God's help. Unconditional election, broken heart for the lost, prayer for the salvation of the lost, responsibility of the lost to believe, and evangelistic strategies for the lost are all in Romans 9, 10, 11, back to back, side by side. So, in God's mind and Paul's mind, there is no contradiction here at all. As Spurgeon said, you know, how do, you, how do I reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? He said, I don't have to reconcile, friends. In God's mind, these two truths fit together perfectly, even if we cannot finally perfectly understand how they can both be true at the same time. And don't forget this as we study Acts, which is about Paul the missionary. The man who wrote Romans 9 was the greatest evangelist who ever lived, other than Jesus. So, the man who wrote this chapter, the clearest teaching on unconditional election in the Bible is the greatest evangelist in the history of the world outside of Jesus. So, this cannot be against evangelism. Paul died on the mission field. His head was removed by Nero on his, probably his fourth missionary journey after the book of Acts ends. So, and also, here's another thing that we forget sometimes. Romans, you know what Romans is? We we tend to think of it as a great doctrinal letter, which certainly (laughs) there is none, no letter greater than Romans in its theology. But you know what Romans actually is? It is a missionary support letter. If you don't believe me, read chapter 15. Paul says, I'm writing this to you so you can know what I believe, so that you can help send me on my way to Spain when I come by Rome. So, the whole letter of Romans is a missionary support letter, and it has chapters 9 to 11 in it. So, don't ever for a second think chapter 9 is against evangelism, prayer for the lost, or missions. Paul is using this as a missionary support letter to reach the nations as he writes it. And just one more caveat before we jump in. If you would like a much more detailed treatment of this than I could ever do right now, uh, I watched most of these over the last week. If you Google, look at the book, Romans 9. Look at the book, 
Romans 9, John Piper has 21 10-minute videos where he walks through Romans verse by verse with his pen. If you know what that looks like, he's got the words of the verse, and he writes, and he circles and underlines until you can barely see the words anymore. And it is a superb treatment, a wonderful handling of Romans 9. And here's what I'd say, 21 videos, 10 minutes of video, watch one a day for three weeks. Does not take more than… You can watch it at two times speed if you're aggressive. Two times speed, five minutes you can watch it. You can watch one or two videos a day for the next two or three weeks, and I'm telling you, it is a thought-provoking, profound look at Romans chapter 9. Okay, all that to say, let's look at the end of Romans 8 first before we jump in. And I realize it's already 3.43, and ladies and gentlemen, that's okay. So we're going to be all right. We got a meal after the service, and then we'll, have, we'll just sleep in the gym, and we'll wake up in the morning, it'll be great. <laughs> Romans 8, 30, uh, 38 and 39. This is the Mount Everest peak of God's promises for His people. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, pause here. Paul has just finished the Mount Everest moment. You don't get higher in the mountain peaks of the Bible promises than Romans 8. You just don't get You can't find a greater collection of promises than the end of Romans 8. It does not get better than this. And Paul knows something. As soon as he finishes this mountain peak, he knows what some are thinking. And we may not think this way because we don't tend to think about this, but when he wrote this, I guarantee you what people were thinking was this. You're saying that God will never, we, we will never be able to be separated from God's love. And they're thinking, well, why is it that God has a covenant people, doesn't He? The Old Testament people of Israel and the Christ of Israel came, and they didn't receive Him in majority. They had Him crucified. And then the majority of the elites in Israel rejected Him, and now the minority, tragically, sadly, the minority of ethnic Jews have embraced Jesus. And now many Gentiles are coming in. And here's the question. Paul, you sound so confident that God will save His people. It doesn't look like He's saving His people in the Old Testament. What about Israel? doesn't look like they're being saved. The majority of them are rejecting the gospel right now. So, how can I stake my eternity on the promises of a God who breaks His promise to Israel? Do you see? That's, that's, the, uh, that's the question. And so, the, if, I think Piper gave an illustration. Imagine a skyscraper is Romans 8, the skyscraper going to the top, uh, the highest building you can imagine, a hundred stories tall. Well, that skyscraper better have a pretty big foundation. And if Romans 8 is the skyscraper, Romans 9 to 11 is the deep foundation that holds the skyscraper up. This is Paul's defense that God's Word never fails, that God has kept His promises, and He will always keep His promises, including His promises to Israel. So, look, look with me at Romans 9, 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who are they? They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6 is the, the first half of verse 6 is the thesis statement for all of 9 to 11. This is crucial. All of 9 to 11 is defending the first sentence of verse 6, 9, 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. 
So Romans 9 to 11 is saying you can trust Romans 8 because God's Word has never and will never fail. God's Word has not failed. And Paul begins to unpack what that means. Middle of verse 6, how do we know God's Word has not failed, that He promised to be God to Israel? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are His offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Are you confused yet? That's a little bit strange. So, God is going to be faithful to Israel. How is that an answer? Listen to it again, middle of verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, do you see what he's saying? Is every ethnic Jew a true Jew or a true believer in God? Is every ethnic Jew a true Jew, part of true spiritual Israel? Is every ethnic Jew part of true Israel? The answer, no. Did God promise in the Old Testament that He would literally save at all times every ethnic Jew? Did God promise that? No. God says there's always been a faithful remnant, true Israel, within ethnic unbelieving Israel. Do you see? Will God save the true Israelites within unbelieving Israel? The answer is yes. So, God never promised He would save every physical descendant of Abraham. And you go, okay, prove it, Paul. Paul goes, I will. Did Abraham have only one son? No. Abraham had first Ishmael, and did Ishmael inherit the promise of salvation? No. Who inherited it? Isaac. And so, he says here, verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham, that is true children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, because they are physical descendants. But through, not Ishmael, Isaac shall your offspring be named. So, here's the point. There has always been selectivity within Israel. God has never promised to save every ethnic Jew. He has always been selective. And so, He passed over Ishmael. He did not give the saving promise to Ishmael, but He gave it to Isaac. And so, God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And you can almost hear… By the way, today, today we'll take some, some, some mental exertion today. I'm just warning you, okay? So, get, get ready for that. Um, someone could object and say, well, of course God chose Isaac. Ishmael wasn't truly… Jewish. Why? Well, you say Abraham was his father. Yeah, but who was his mother? Hagar. He had an Egyptian slave mother. So, really, of course God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. That doesn't count, Paul. That illustration doesn't count because Ishmael's not truly Jewish. Isaac was full-blooded Jewish. And so, Paul wants to close the loophole that someone might raise, and so he says, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise, like Isaac, are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's Isaac. Now, look at the next one, verse 10. And not only so, so he's going to add to his argument, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now, pause there. Isaac and Rebekah get married, Genesis 24. They get married, 
And by the way, they're also unable to have children for the first 20 years of their marriage. So just like Sarah couldn't have a baby, God supernaturally gave them a baby when she was 90. Here again, they can't have a baby. God gives it to them after Isaac prayed, it says, for 20 years, apparently, for his wife, and she conceived. Now, look what Paul says, verse 10, and not only so, but also Rebekah, when she had conceived children, the twins, Jacob and Esau, by one man, our forefather Isaac. How many men can you conceive twins from? The answer is obviously one. Why is Paul going out of his way to state the obvious? She conceived twins by one man. Like, Paul, we could have done the math ourselves on that one. We figured that out. Paul is pointing what? The other situation with Isaac and Ishmael, they were different moms. This time, the twins have the same mother, Rebecca, and one father, Isaac. That's why he states the obvious. You can't, there's no loophole here. Both twins in the womb, Jacob and Esau, are equally Jewish, okay? And... God makes a decision that the older will serve the younger, that Jacob and not Esau will inherit the promise. When did God make that promise? Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now, this is extremely important. When it comes to the doctrine of election, the big question is, when God chooses before someone is born to choose one or to pass over another, is God looking into the person's future to see future actions that they will do and making His choice based on foreseen behaviors that the person would do? So here's the the typical thing that many Southern Baptists would say, which I disagree with. This is what they would say. They would say, election exists, it's in the Bible, God chooses. But God's election is conditional, not unconditional. In other words, God looks down the corridors of time, if you've heard this phrase before, God looks into the future, and He sees future decisions that you will make, and He sees who will, of their own independent free choice, choose Him, and who will reject Him, and God can see that ahead of time, so He chooses those He knows already will choose them of their own free will, and He elects them, and He passes over those who would reject Him. Now, there are multiple problems with that. Number one was Sunday school. There was no ability for us to choose Christ if He did not first choose us. So, you can go back and listen to Sunday school if you weren't there. We just don't think that's even possible biblically, but Paul here makes a very different argument. One more time, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, stop there. Why would Paul, again, almost state the obvious? We know that if twins are in the womb, they haven't done anything, good or bad. We know that. Like, if a twin has just been conceived in the womb, hasn't lived a life of sin or a life of obedience, of course. Why does Paul stop his sentence? I mean, Paul's not one to waste words. Every word counts. Why does Paul stop his thought and say, God made the choice of Jacob and passing over Esau. God made that choice before they were born or had done anything, either good or bad. You know why? So that God's electing purpose could stand. In other words, God's choice was not based on foreseen actions of Jacob and Esau. This is the clearest statement imaginable in the Bible that election is unconditional. Before you are born or have done anything, good or bad, God made His choice. It's unconditional election. 
You get the words from this verse. It's not like some… Don't blame John Calvin for these words, okay? This is Paul. Paul was a long time before John Calvin. He says here, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. So, the point here is when God chooses some for His salvific purposes and passes over others to pursue their own will and sin and to be justly condemned, God is making that decision based on His good pleasure and His freedom, not on anything in the creature whatsoever. Not anything I have done, not anything I haven't done, not anything good that I'm going to do, not anything bad I'm going to do, not foreseen faith, nothing. God is making this choice completely independently. Now, let me just pause here and make a point about evangelism already. You say, if that's true, evangelism is pointless because God's already made the choice, so who cares if I evangelize? No, it is exactly the opposite for a couple reasons. Number one, the man who wrote this died on the mission field, so he didn't think that's true. If I'm drawing implications from the text that the man who wrote it doesn't draw, I'm incorrect, not him, okay? So just remember that. Paul died on the mission field who wrote these words. So, no, rather, the doctrine of election gives us boldness in evangelism because, listen, if it is true that God chooses unconditionally who will be saved based on nothing you've done good or bad, then there is no one so lost who cannot be saved by God. So when you are talking to a drug addict who's been in rehab multiple times, has wrecked his marriage, has abandoned his children, has absolutely just destroyed his life, is on the verge of suicide, has attempted suicide multiple times, has barely been saved, has been hospitalized for drug abuse, and here he is sitting there saying, oh yeah, you grew up in Sunday school, you're a goody two-shoes kid, of course God loves you, of course you're saved, of course you get the gospel, I'm too far gone. The answer is you've got to get in their face with unconditional election. I'm not kidding. You say, The Bible says God chooses based on nothing you've ever done, good or bad, which means no one can say, look how bad I am, God can't use me, God can't choose me, God can't save me, because God doesn't choose based on what you've done. God chooses based on God. So stop telling God what He can or cannot do, and put away your list of failures and say, believe in Jesus right now, believe. And as you say those words, how many times the Lord works through our words to create what you are asking for, new life in that person. And they say, I cannot believe He saved me. I remember one pastor who was greatly involved in the drug movement in, I guess it was in the 60s, and he was as lost as you could ever imagine hated God talk. He said when he would get high, he said he would go into these abandoned buildings and they would sit around with, on their drug high all night with his friends. He was a leader. He, was, he said he took, he took the SAT while on LSD. Just something to not try. And so, uh, I'm sure he did wonderfully. And so, uh, he, he, said, he said he was just all messed up. He said he, he would sit there with his friends and they would be on their drug highs and some of his friends would start talking about God while they're on their drug highs and he would shut it down. Like, I don't, that does not give me any pleasure. Stop with the God talk. One of his friends moves to Florida, is in a revival meeting of some kind, hears the gospel, repents and believes, God draws him to himself, and he wants to go back and find this pastor friend of mine. He wasn't a pastor yet, obviously. I certainly hope not. He goes back to find his friend who's who's lost, and he says, I want to meet with you. Can we go to your house? I want to talk to you tonight. He said, oh yeah. So he thought it was going to be another, you know, let's all get high and have fun. And so they go into his living room. He said he, he lit up some, some hash of some kind. Not, he said, I think he said, not the hash your grandmother made. It's a different kind. And he, he lit it up, and he's sitting there smoking, and he offered some to his friend, and his friend said no, and he thought that's strange, but he wasn't deterred to keep on himself using it. And in the middle of that moment, his friend says, I got to tell you something that happened to me. 
he said he understood very little, but he just said, Jesus is God's Son, and He was sent to earth, and He lived a sinless life, and He died a horrible death for sinners, and if you will turn and believe in Him, you'll be saved. And he said, he put his smoking device down, and he said he never picked it back up, because that was the first time he ever remembers hearing the gospel, and he was radically converted right there on the spot. And he grabbed a King James Bible. He said, I couldn't even understand what the words meant. He said, he just read the whole, he just read through it over the next couple of weeks, could not put it down. He said, I didn't know what it was saying, but I knew this was something real. This was God speaking to me. And he was radically converted, became a pastor and started a number of churches. Now, he said, I didn't need a, a lesson in theology to believe in unconditional election. He said, I believed it from the moment I <laughs> became a believer because I knew it wasn't me acting. It was God acting on me. God intervened in his life and chose him apart from anything he had done. Because if God is choosing based on what we've done, uh, I don't think you're going to pick that guy. But God does not choose based on what you have or haven't done. This is actually liberating for evangelism, not destructive for evangelism. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Now, this is important. Verse 11, one more time. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. Now, pause right there. Now, if, you're, if you remember Paul's letters like Romans and Galatians, chapters 3 and 4 of Romans, 5, we are used to Paul saying this phrase, not by works. Are we not used to that? Not according to works, not by works. And you know what normally follows that? Normally, he says, a man is justified not by works, but by faith in Jesus, right? It says it over and over and over. When Paul is talking, this is so important, when Paul is talking about justification, how we are made right before God, that is done by faith. We must believe to be forgiven and justified. So, justification is by faith. Election is not. Look at it, the end of verse 11 that God's purpose in election might continue. What is God's purpose in election based on? Not because of works, but because of foreseen faith. Not because of works, but because of God who calls. Justification is by faith. Election is not. Election is based on God's sovereign good pleasure. Verse 12, and I won't spend a lot of time on 12 and 13, uh, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is a very intense verse. Uh, a lot of people will say, you know, hated often in the Bible means loved less. Like Jesus says, you got to hate your father and mother before, you know, to love in, in your love for me, which means love less. Listen, I'm not even going to go to a big argument about that, but I will just say this. If you read Malachi 1, I think it means more than just loved less, because you just read Malachi 1. But, but here's what I'll say. Whatever it means, the point is this. God is showing preference for one twin over the other in the womb before they've done anything. Whatever hate means, it does mean a lesser thing than the love for Jacob. And so, God shows preference for one over the other before they're born. Talk about that more, but we got to keep going. Verse 14. Now, listen, Paul knows what everyone is thinking when you hear this. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? How do we respond to this? Is there injustice or unrighteousness on God's part by no means. Now, pause there. This is critical. Don't we all instinctively feel when we hear this doctrine for the first time, that's not fair? Paul knows everyone reading this is thinking that's not just, which means, guess what? We're reading Paul correctly. 
Do you get that? If, you're, if what I'm saying right now makes you think that doesn't sound just, then that means we are accurately interpreting Paul's argument. Because if Paul was making the argument that God elects based on your choice, then there's nothing unfair about that, is there? There's nothing unjust about that. If God's choice is based on something that you do, then there's nothing unjust. He would never raise the objection, that's so unfair of God to choose based on what you do. But God's not choosing based on what you do. And therefore, everyone who hears this goes, that's not just, which means that actually is what Paul's saying, and Paul anticipates that objection and says it. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness or injustice on God's part? And Paul immediately says, by no means. Now, follow me here. He's going to give, this is very hard to, to do orally, so he's going to give two reasons why it is not unrighteous or unjust of God to do this. Verse 15 is the first reason, for he says, that's for means I'm giving you a reason, for he says, and then verse 16 draws out an implication, so then. Then verse 17 gives a second reason, for the Scripture says, and then verse 18 draws out a final implication, so then. Did that confuse everybody? So the question is, how could God choose unconditionally? That's not just. And then Paul gives two reasons, 15 and 17. All right, here's the first reason why it is not unjust of God to choose one before the other before they've done anything good or bad. Verse 15, for He, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, you don't have to turn there, but do you know where that quote comes from? This comes from right before Moses sees God's glory, listen to these words in Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. Remember Mount Sinai? Show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This isn't a random verse. This verse about I show mercy to whom I show mercy and I show compassion to whom I show compassion is a verse given when God is defining who He is to Moses. I will proclaim my goodness. I will bring my glory before you. I will proclaim my name. And you know what the essence of God's name is? I am free. I show mercy to whom I show mercy and I show compassion to whom I have compassion. The freedom of God in giving mercy is at the essence of who God is when He says I am who I am. I show mercy to whom I show mercy. I am Yahweh. That is my prerogative as God. Now, an important point here, R.C. Sproul is so good on this point. If you say at this point, that's not righteous, that's not just for God to show mercy to some and to pass over others, Sproul would say, you just forgot the meaning of mercy. We have a man-centered view of God that thinks God, to really be God, owes every human being an enormous amount of mercy. Yes, we make mistakes. Oh, yes, we forget about God, and we blaspheme and lie and cheat and steal, and we hate, and we… Oh, yes, we have our problems. But God really owes us mercy, and if He doesn't give it to us, we say, God is unrighteous. We have just misunderstood the meaning of God's mercy. Mercy, by definition is something I do not deserve. If I am a murderer on death row and the president grants me clemency and just gets me out of there, he has given me mercy. And if there are 10 people on death row and the president 
releases one, and the other nine go and pay for their own crimes by, by capital punishment. Has the president wronged the nine he passed over? No, they are getting exactly justice. The one that is granted clemency gets mercy, and mercy is deserved by none but given to countless millions. And so, I, I, got, I, I don't have time to do this, but I'm just going to stretch time today. I got to tell you an illustration. This is my favorite illustration of this from R.C. Sproul. I've told it at least a year ago. R.C. Sproul was a professor teaching in a seminary. He had freshmen come in to teach teaching Bible, and he had one paper due, I think, a month for three months. So it was like September 30th, October 30th, November 30th, or whatever. They had a paper due. It's big papers, and your whole grade is resting on these. And you remember this? He had 200 students, and at the end of the first semester, uh, 175 of them came, and they had their papers, and there's 25 of them who were terrified in the corner saying, oh, Professor Sproul, we did not make the transition from high school to college very well, and we got caught up with this and that on the weekend, and we got behind in our studies, and we didn't do very well in organizing our week, and we got, oh, Professor Sproul, please have mercy on us. And he said, mm, okay. He said, all right, I'll give you two more days and turn your papers in. I won't deduct any points, but don't do that next time around because next time I'm not going to give mercy. They said, oh, Professor Sproul, we will do, oh, absolutely, we'll have it in. So then that was September. Now it's uh, October 30th. And, and now uh, I think it was uh, 100 students show up with their papers and 100 of them now, or, I think, no, wait, there's 150 have it and 50 didn't. So it's 25 more, 25 more. And uh, th this time again, 50 students are shaking in their boots. Professor Sproul, please, we, we had the big dance this weekend, and we got distracted. Oh, please, Professor Sproul, give us mercy. And he said, all right, all right, you don't deserve this. No, we don't deserve this. This is the last time I'm doing it. I'll give you mercy. You have two more days, but I'm not doing this again. In November, you have to have them due on time. November 30th rolls around. By, by the way, he also said he became the most popular professor on campus in one day. He said they were singing the song, We Love You, Prof. Sproul, Oh Yes We Do, all around campus. He said, I was the most popular professor on campus until November 30th. <laughs> on November 30th, he said, uh, I think it was 50 people showed up with their papers. And like 150, the vast 75% did not have their papers. And he said, this time, he said, they, were, they came in at ease in Zion. <laughs> He said, 150 walked in and said, oh, Prof. Sproul, don't worry, we'll have it to you in a couple of days. And he looks at one. He said, Smith, is that, is that you? He said, yeah, I, I don't have it. He said, you don't have your paper? He said, no, okay. He went up and put F in the grade book. He, turned out, he goes, Douglas, what about you? He said, sir, I don't have my paper. Put F in the grade book. Alexander, what about you? I don't have it. F the he said, when he got to number four, all together, without, without any planning, every student who didn't have their paper, you know what they, they yelled what you had just said, that's not fair. And he said, oh, you want justice? Douglas, is it true that you didn't turn your paper in on time last time around? Yes, sir. And he goes back, I'm going to give you an F on that paper too. And then he turned to the students, this is a true story, he turned to the students and said, does anyone else want justice? And he said, and they all held their peace. <laughs> now, here's the point of that story. We are so accustomed to God's mercy and grace you know, the first time we mess up and we plead before the Lord, we're so desperate, we feel so terrible and broken. God, please forgive us. Please, I'll never do it again. And then the second time, it's a little less desperate. And by the hundredth time, we're thinking, God owes me mercy, and if He doesn't give it to me, there's something wrong with Him. Paul says here, listen, do you know who you are? Sons and daughters of Adam, do you know who you are? You're born in iniquity, as we heard in Sunday school. You are a hater of God. 
You're at enmity with God. You hate His commands. They are burdensome to you. You live your life for your glory, not for God's glory. That is what we all are. And then, if God leaves us to ourselves so that we continue down the path we have chosen freely in our sin and in our slavery, and we continue down our hell-bound course, if God lets us go, we want to blame Him rather than ourselves for what's happening. And God says, you don't understand. When I pass over an Esau, or I harden a Pharaoh, or I give someone over to their vices, it is their love of their iniquity that's dragging them down. But when I show mercy to a Jacob, or I show mercy to a a Moses after his murder in Exodus, when I show mercy to a David after adultery and say, the Lord has taken away your sins, you will not die. When, When I do that, no one is calling God unjust. When if there ever was a time where you should call God unjust, it's when He forgives sinners. In fact, Romans says God would be unjust if He forgave sinners like David and others and Moses and didn't have someone pay the price for that sin. He would be unjust. Romans 3 says God showed His righteousness, His justice, by putting forth Jesus as a propitiation, one who bore God's punishment, paid the price so that God could both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when we hear the doctrine of election, we should not be shocked Aren't we all? We're shocked that it says God hated Esau. We should be shocked that it says God loved Jacob, the deceiver. We are shocked by the wrong thing because we have a man-centered view of God. We really do think He's there to serve us and that we're the center of the story. But really, we exist to serve Him, and His glory is the center of the story. So Paul draws this implication. Again, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion. I'm free on whom I have compassion. Verse 16 is devastating to the classical free will position. So then, it, that is God's electing mercy, so then it, God's election, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's like the end of verse 11. The the election was not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Listen to me, friends who know the Lord in this room and who are listening, listen. If you are a Christian, God elected you not because of anything your will ever did or would do. God does not choose us because we were going to believe. We weren't going to believe. God chooses us so that we believe. We got to get this order right. Election depends not on human will or exertion, literally not on Him who wills or Him who runs, but on God who has mercy, and He is free to give it to whom He wills. Next example, verse 17. Why is God not unjust? Verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, we talked about Pharaoh last week. Let me just, I just got to read one verse from Exodus 14. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Exodus 14, listen to a few verses here. This is as they're heading toward the Red Sea. Listen to this. Verse 4, and God speaking, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 
and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in. The Red Sea, when it's open, they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God's sovereign decrees are attached to His glory. God desires this is, this is just so important. The way God is sovereign over mercy and the way He's sovereign over hardening are not the same. This is very important. Theologians talk about this. You know symmetrical? Symmetrical means two things look identical. God is not symmetrical in His sovereignty over salvation and condemnation. He's not symmetrical. He is asymmetrical, non-symmetrical. What does that mean? Here's what I mean. If, if you're a believer, God interrupted your will and gave you a new heart and gave you better than you deserve, Right? He interrupted your course. It's like a child running toward the street with the UPS truck coming. You interrupt their course, do you not? And save their life? We, we were choosing to run towards destruction. God intervened, grabbed us, gave us better than we deserve, changed our heart, changed our will, gave us new life. That's better than we deserve. That's not how God hardens hearts. God doesn't go to someone who's going down a good course of, 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 of righteousness and say, I don't like that you're obeying me. I'm going to cook up some evil and force you to commit evil against your will. No, 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 no. God, all He has to do is step back, and what do we do? We harden our own hearts. So God is hardening His heart. Pharaoh's hardening His heart at the same time. God is stepping back and giving Pharaoh over to Himself. So look, the difference is this. With hardening, God gives you what you already want in your sin and He just lets you go. He passes over and lets you go, which is perfectly fair and just. With mercy, God intervenes, interrupts your course, and saves you from yourself, giving you a new heart to love and a heart to obey. Now, we're getting close to the end, I think. So, look at the next objection Paul wants to deal with, verse 19. So, let me read 18 again. So, then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills, you will say to me then, why does He still find fault for who can resist His will? You, you get this? It's like Pharaoh saying, God, you hardened my heart. Why are you holding me responsible? How can you find fault with my will if it's under your will? If your sovereign will always comes to pass no matter what, including the betrayal of Judas, which was predestined by God, Luke twenty-two twenty-two, 22, or the crucifixion of Jesus, which happened according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge in Acts 2, 23, but was carried out by the hands of lawless men, or Acts 4, 24, 27, 28, where it says, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. God is sovereign even over the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus, the greatest evil of all. But God is unstained and untouched by iniquity even when He is sovereign over it. We are still accountable for our sin. And you say, that is very hard to fully understand. I agree. I cannot fully comprehend that, but I know Scripture teaches both. God is totally sovereign at the end of the day, and yet we are still accountable for our sinfulness. Verse 20. Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And, and I think 22 and 23 are the most ultimate verses answering our question, 
This is as close as the Bible comes to revealing why God does not save all. 22 and 23 is worth studying. What if God, and if your translation has although, I wish that was just X'd out, what if God desiring, I just got the NAS has although there, but the legacy standard that MacArthur just updated got rid of the although, which I'm very happy about. Okay, what, what if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. That's as close as you get to the final bottom of the building here. L listen again. What if God, desiring to show His wrath just like with Pharaoh and to make known His power just like with Pharaoh, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, why would God do that? Why would God harden a Pharaoh and prepare him for destruction in the Red Sea or people in eternity, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory? God's glory is at the bottom. For vessels of mercy, undeserved people like us who've been saved, for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. So, so here's the challenge. I, I have no doubt, just like last week, that there are a number listening, and maybe even listening online, who right now as they hear this just think, that sounds so foreign to what I've ever heard. I did not grow up ever hearing this in church. I've never heard anyone try to make sense out of Romans 9. This sounds extremely challenging and difficult. What I would say is, you know, you can get Piper's Providence book, go watch the look at the book videos, read Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. But I, I want to I challenge you, don't give up on this thing. Don't, don't give up on this doctrine. Study it, read Scripture, get some good books, spend time on it, and pray for God to illumine your eyes to see this with greater clarity. And I will close with an illustration. I think I mentioned it once, maybe two years ago. Very briefly, I, I mentioned sometimes Don Carson and his father, Tom Carson, who was an unknown pastor in Canada. While he was working there, they had a church, and if you read his journals, it just makes you literally weep. He would preach to 15 people on a Sunday, and a big crowd was 20, and there was almost no fruit. He went a couple years without a single conversion, even though he was doing door-to-door -door evangelism at the time. He was, he'd struggle with discouragement. A number of missionaries from another part of the world, I won't say where, to protect the, <laughs> to protect them here, but a number of missionaries came to Quebec to, to help them out, because they could also speak French at the time, and they started helping. And none of them lasted more than six months. And Don Carson said this, none of these missionaries from out of town lasted more than six months. As a high school student, I saw myself as more than equipped to venture opinions on just about everything. He's talking to his dad. So I asked dad why none of them had the courage and stamina to stick it out. Why didn't they stay? The missionaries. Always the meekest of men, Dad replied rather mildly, Don, you have to understand that we have been used to serving in a part of the world where they have, they have seen much… they are used to serving in a part of the world where they have seen much blessing. They are used to considerable crowds. They have built clinics and hospitals. They have seen many people converted and helped train pastors and teach them. Then they arrive here in Canada, and they find everything interminably slow. How are they likely to read this except to conclude that they must have misunderstood their call to Quebec since no fruit seems to be forthcoming? And then this is the part that just got me. So, I replied, Don speaking to his dad as a teenager, Don says, so I replied, 
why don't you go to some part of the world where there would be much fruit instead of staying here and producing so little? Imagine that. Until then, the conversation had been casual. Now my dad wheeled on me and said rather curtly, I stay because I believe God has many people in this place. Referring to Acts 18 and the encouragement God gave to Paul in Corinth that there were many elect people in the city yet to be converted, and if Paul would simply stay, which he did for another 18 months, when he preached, they would be saved because God is sovereign. This means evangelism will have guaranteed success for God's own. And then Don says, this was one of the many times when my dad grounded his perseverance on the doctrine of election. So for those of us in evangelistic settings where there is very little fruit forthcoming, we must believe in unconditional election that God will save His own. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this passage. I do pray, God, that You would illuminate the words of this passage. Help us to see that our salvation is owing entirely to Your free and sovereign mercy that snatched us as a brand from the fire, whether we were five years old or 45 years old or older in our conversion, God. It was Your sovereign love that saved us from ourselves. God, as we sing, I pray that we would feel some of the gratitude and the all that we owe You for all that You have done for us as un deserving sinners who've been saved by sheer sovereign mercy. Reading from Titus chapter 2. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But with the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works.